Hello, and welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. What's this space all about? Well, first, it's going to be about epic stories. I'm a writer. I have been since the fifth grade when my friend Charlie showed me what she was writing for elementary school newspaper, and I thought, I can do that. Professionally, I've been a writer for over two decades. You can Google my name and see some of the things I've published. I currently have a book deal with Ulysses Press, and I'm working on pitching a bigger memoir, too. Writing, to me, is like breathing. And I believe stories, the writing, the sharing, the editing, the refining of our own narratives are how we heal. Our brains are programmed to remember stories. Seriously, Harvard says so, and like every good Asian kid, Harvard means you've made it. So, we'll use stories as a vehicle for healing. Every Monday, we'll feature a personal essay from me. This podcast will also be about mental, emotional, and even spiritual health. In Asian communities, at least in my own family of origin, we didn't talk about things like anxiety, depression, guilt, shame, or, let's be honest, just feelings in general. We didn't go into anything that couldn't be graded or scored. We didn't want to be in this weird, awkward place where things could be irrational or hard to quantify. I've gone through a lot of therapy. When I was 17, I developed an eating disorder that took over my life until I was in my 30s. I starved, binged, purged, compulsively exercised my way into hopeful oblivion until I found myself on the other side of the world working as an editor in Shanghai, China. That's where I realized that I had run as far away from my problems and my family of origin as I could, but there I still was. So I went back to California and I entered into an intensive outpatient program that consisted of about 10 to 15 hours a week of one-on-one talk therapy, group therapy, movement therapy, arts therapy, and lots and lots more different types of therapy. I was the only Asian American woman in the room. I would find myself often as the only Asian American woman in many rooms. I eventually spent years in therapy. I'd be hit with severe postpartum depression after I had my daughter, and even peripartum depression before that. Along the way, I have always believed that getting help isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of motherfucking strength. It is you being brave enough to know that you need support, that you're courageous enough to look at your own shadows, that you're willing to be authentically you and feel all your feelings in a world that often tries to make you like everyone else, quashing your tenderness so that you can fit inside the pretty little squares of social media. This Fuck Saving Face podcast is a space to explore all the things that have been culturally perceived as taboo. It's a place for us to amplify our voices, to redefine what it means to be Asian in America today, because our world is changing. There are hate crimes against Asians. COVID is happening. There's a hashtag stop Asian hate. We're starting to see ourselves in mainstream media with shows like Kim's Convenience or even reality TV like Bling Empire, or of course the movies like Crazy Rich Asians. But there's so much more to us than that. If you have ever felt rage at being minimized, at smiling when you're faced with a microaggression, of wondering if it's worth it to bring something up to clarify who you are or where you're from, to have that uncomfortable conversation, if you've ever been asked, where are you really from? Or you're wondering if the way that you're being perceived and approached is because you're a quote-unquote minority, this is a place where we will explore the truths we've wanted to say. I believe that in order to support other marginalized voices, we need to find our own. 
And what better way to do that than to hear it in interviews with humans just like you and me who've gone through what we've gone through and they've gained wisdom along the way that they're now ready to share so we can all support one another to thrive. That's what our weekly Wednesday interviews will be about. This podcast is also a gift to my daughter. She's now six years old, half Chinese, half white. I never knew if I'd become a mother because I'm the eldest of four kids and I help pack my siblings' lunches, I change my brother's diapers, I bathe them at night. I even advocated for their safety when my father's anger and physical discipline became too much. But both quietly and overtly, my parents taught me that white is better. And so I took it to the extreme. I married a white man that when he asked me if I wanted to marry him, every single part of me, from my deep intuition and gut feelings to my rational brain, wanted to say no. But I said yes, because he did it in a public way and I wanted to save face. I always said that if I were going to have a child, I'd want her to be half white, half Asian, because Haba babies are the cutest. When in reality, I think it's because that I thought I would reach some pinnacle somehow, some peak of making it, only to find myself in a bed with a man who was not good to me, trying to make myself fit what I believed family should look like. Now we're divorced, and I couldn't be happier. It is not without trials and tribulations that I got to this point, but it is absolutely worth it. I want this podcast to show my daughter that it's okay to be exactly who she is, that she can be celebrated and seen, that she is worthy for simply being. I want this podcast to let her know that there is no such thing as perfect, even though that's what I tried to attain for so long, because I believed that finding perfection would lead to acceptance, wholeness, and the ability to finally fit in. There is beauty in vulnerability. There is gorgeousness in authenticity. There is happiness in finding your own path and living it true. I want her to know all of these things. And finally, I want this podcast to be a source of peace, of releasing guilt and shame, an opportunity for healing. Through mindfulness practices every Friday, I'll bring my experience as a yoga teacher and a Reiki master practitioner. It's okay if you don't know what that is. We'll go into that eventually and a former contributor to an award-winning mindfulness app to give you a few moments to find your way home. From the beginning of time ever after, there will never, ever be another you. Be wildly you. I often say that life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's write your beautiful life together. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. Okay, let's dive into this very first week's episode. So remember, every Monday we'll be focusing on a personal essay, every Wednesday will be an interview, and every Friday will be a mindfulness practice. All of them will be centered on the theme for that week based on the person that I'm interviewing. So this week, on this Wednesday, we will be talking with half-black, half-Chinese Susan Epps, who's a diversity and inclusion consultant. And we'll explore her quest to find the sense of belonging, especially considering that her grandfather was a four-star general for Chiang Kai-shek, and he didn't like the fact that, in her own words, he had, quote-unquote, Negro children. So she has this fascinating story of how, in the beginning of her life, she lived in Taiwan, and her and her older brother had two very different skin tones, so the way that they were approached and treated in Taiwan was very different, and then they came to the States. So... Tune in to this Wednesday's episode and you'll hear her talk about these fascinating experiences. You'll also hear her incredible sense of humor. 
And this week's theme is going to be focused on how to find your safe spaces, how to understand, you know, that sense of belonging that we are all seeking and searching for, and how to ultimately fit in. And I will start with my essay, How to Find Your Safe Spaces. Trigger warning, this episode does contain mention of suicide. How to Find Your Safe Spaces how to find a sense of fitting in. When we were living in Austin, Texas, we rented an expansive retro house with three living rooms, a huge dining area, a smallish kitchen, and four bedrooms. We also had a backyard and a front yard and room in the driveway and on the street to park summer, our 1984 Toyota Warrior Winnebago RV. In this house, there was a lot of space, but there was not enough room for me. My daughter was turning two, and I had been struggling to find my way. As she grew remarkably, so did my postpartum depression. It began to hit levels of darkness that sucked any remaining light out of my life to the point that the idea of suicide began to feel so alluring. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, my doctor told me. In her book, Furiously Happy, Jenny Lawson writes, depression is a crazy disease that makes you want to murder yourself. My marriage was falling apart. I wanted to talk about it with my husband, but by now we were sleeping in separate bedrooms, and if I did try to reach out to him at night, feeling desperate to be connected, he would simply shut the door in my face. I asked the first friends we had in Austin, a beautiful married couple, smart women who'd done the work to create a healthy relationship with each other and a thriving community in town, for a therapist as a path to hopefully save my marriage. Soon, it became a conversation about saving me. One afternoon, my brown-haired therapist looked at me and said, Given how sick you were while you were pregnant, you likely suffered from peripartum depression before your postpartum depression became obvious. You also went through a medical trauma with your hyperemesis gravidarum. I looked down at the floor of her modern office in the side room of her house. How was she able to make her marriage work? I bet you he's nice. I bet you he doesn't stonewall her. I bet you he doesn't make their son feel like the only person who exists while treating her like nothing at all. I envied that she and her husband probably made a lot of money to support their son, only a year older than my daughter, when I was working to get us out of debt. I felt like a failure. I don't know what else to do, I said. Everything feels too hard. While seeing this therapist, I started to hide in one of the closets of my home office. I relished the darkness. I liked that I could bring a blanket and a pillow and cry softly in a space that felt enclosed enough to be manageable. Eventually, I would come out of the room sit at my desk, and continue to work. I had a full-time job writing marketing copy for a health supplement company and took on side projects with more supplement companies to keep doing whatever I could to get us out of the debt that kept compiling in ways I couldn't understand, especially not when I asked my husband. I even had a budget person come to our house to make sense of things, me thinking that maybe my depression wasn't enabling me to think clearly. But she looked at the light items and asked, Did your husband really spend over $1,000 a month on groceries? Yes, I said. I opened up the cabinets to reveal the bulk cans and containers. Do you think you could talk to him about it? I shook my head no. I couldn't talk to him about anything. I think I like contained spaces because sometimes I need to hit upon some boundaries to find my center, even if in the past the edges I bumped up against hurt. As a writer, I can retreat into myself and... Outward, enclosed spaces have allowed me to feel held, protected, safe. Just recently, I came home to my new partner after a long day at a small photo shoot and said, 
I've realized that I feel drained when hanging around other people. I am truly an introvert at heart. But in a world that encourages us to be seen, and in an American culture that teaches me the antithesis of the falling-in-line philosophy that I grew up with in my Chinese household, I don't always feel like I have that luxury. So I hide in hoodies. I take road trips by myself in cars. I am like Temple Grandin needing pressure on my body, so at night I sleep with a weighted blanket. When I became a new mother in Hawaii, I found a safe space hiding behind a shower curtain. Again, we were in an expansive house with a retro design. It was historic. There were two living rooms, a huge dining area, a large kitchen, and three bedrooms. There was a wraparound yard, complete with tropical trees that provided us regularly with handles of bananas, a back-covered lanai, a shed, and two and a half bathrooms. It was my dream of all dreams in my entire life to move to Kauai. Six months after moving there, I fell into a whirlwind romance in this most remote inhabited place in the world. Two weeks into our relationship, we consciously chose to have a child together, palpably feeling our daughter's presence wanting to come into being through the veil of the islands. Three weeks into our relationship, I was pregnant, and then everything changed forever. I became the sickest I'd ever been in my life for almost the entirety of my pregnancy. When my daughter finally arrived, I found that the only way to hold on to any semblance of myself was to find a small, confined space in the shower to be me, away from the roles and responsibilities of mother, wife, freelancer, landlord. When I was younger, I would occasionally hide in closets for safety. My mother's closet was jam-packed. But one day, I didn't want my older cousins to find me, to pull me into the middle room of our house, to yell at me for hours like they always did about how I was disrespecting my grandmother, the matriarch of our family. Later, after years of therapy, I realized that what I was really doing was just being a kid. But I was just a kid who was not guai. I was not the good Chinese girl that my sister seemed to live with such ease. Three years my junior, my sister didn't talk back. She was quiet. She was sweet and obedient and observed the room, knowing precisely when to speak and what to do. I would say all the wrong things. I would say them at the wrong times. I would say them too loudly. In adulthood, at a bar in Santa Monica, my sister told me that she would always do the opposite of what I would do growing up because she watched me make all the mistakes to know that she didn't want to be anywhere near my debris. My footsteps were too loud, my laugh was too loud, my presence was too much. My mother said that I was zisi, selfish. She called me hundan, bastard. She said she regretted having me, a lot. That day in the closet, my youngest brother, who was nine years my junior, came to find me. He saw me crying while sitting askew on top of my mother's suitcases. He also found me hiding in the trunk of our minivan another time, after my parents had been yelling at me for hours in their failing aquarium store in Roland Heights, California. Am I really as bad as they say I am? I asked him, crawling over the back into a seat. He just looked at me, wide-eyed. He was six. Growing up, my father and his two sisters who lived nearby and all of our families would regularly see each other. I was obsessed with my cousin Meg. Meg was seven years older than me. All of my Taiwanese aunts and uncles said how beautiful she was. She's the pretty one. She's the one who I wished I could be. But try as I might, I kept failing at being loved the way that she was. Whenever Meg bestowed attention on me, I felt chosen. She had this quiet, refined grace. And she even wrote with her left hand, which I felt distinguished her more. 
We play games. We do our best at making American foods like meatloaf. And sometimes she'd have friends over who'd smile and make conversation with me too. When I was in her presence, I temporarily got to try on what worthiness felt like until I had to give her back to her family and go home to mine. My sister and my cousin got along beautifully. I never wanted my sister to hang out with us because if she were around, then she was the one who my cousin preferred. My sister would then get to dance in the glory of my cousin's attention, and suddenly I was relegated to the same role I always had, the one who was everything wrong. In elementary school, I knew that all of my relatives hated me. They would criticize my manners, my demeanor, my physical appearance, both to my face and whenever I was still in earshot, pretending like they didn't know I could hear them. We used to have this sliding door bathroom near the kitchen of my childhood home. As my aunts rolled dumplings and put food on the lazy Susan six feet away, they spoke even more loudly about my faults and flaws when I went to go to the bathroom. They knew what they were doing. I was the least favorite of all the children that existed in our extended family. One afternoon, I asked my parents if we could sleep over at my aunt's house. We weren't ever allowed to sleep over or have a meal at any of our friends' houses, but every now and again, they let us stay with my cousin Meg. My parents said my sister had to stay too. So we were upstairs playing in Meg's room. Meg had put out a sleeping bag and a couple of blankets on the floor. One of us would sleep there. The other would get to sleep in the twin bed next to her. I wanted that coveted spot. But already sensing myself on the periphery, I decided to go to the bathroom. I was about to turn on the light right outside her room when I heard my parents talking to my aunt downstairs. We just don't know what to do with eating, my father and mother said to Meg's mom, talking about me by my Chinese name. Meg's mom had always been harsh. She had a perpetually stern look on her face, sharp, pointy, polished fingernails, a bell-shaped perm haircut, and this venom she spewed towards her husband in full view of everyone. It always made her seem like a cobra in my eyes. But this time, our gugu, Meg's mom, responded, Megwanshi, it's okay, she'll grow out of it. My mouth opened. I thought this woman hated me, but she was coming to defend me? In Mandarin, my parents protested. No, no, they insisted. I snuck over to the landing behind the cabinet where they could not see me. I could hear everything clearly. We don't think so, my father said. The front door was open and my parents were getting ready to leave. I could not swallow. I could not breathe. She's the absolute worst, my mother reiterated in Mandarin. Up until now, my young mind gave my family members the benefit of the doubt. I thought to myself, well, they know that I can hear them, and they're just doing this because this is their way of disciplining children. I know I had these thoughts because they're in journals that my mother made us keep when she heard from another Chinese mother that having children write in journals every night would improve our English. Tonight, I realized something new. They really believe this about me, I thought to myself. They really think I'm all the awful things they say to my face. My aunt and my parents said their goodbyes. Stunned, I forgot to pee. Instead, I opened the door back to Meg's room again to find them giggling, both their pale skin glowing with joy. I crawled into the sleeping bag on the floor, the slippery texture slipping beneath me. I began to burrow, pulling the top over my head to cover my eyes. That would be my spot for the night. I would not fight for the place beside Meg in the bed. What are you doing? Meg asked. It's early. You're going to sleep? Yeah, I told her I'm just tired. She shrugged. She turned her attention back to my sister. And then I silently sobbed in this dark and soft cave. Maybe the real reason why I like closed spaces is because in the beginning, 
I was born premature and my mother left me in an incubator, all five pounds of me, and told me over and over throughout my life that she got to go home before I did. She said it not knowing that maybe I pushed out of her womb early because I no longer wanted to be attached or tethered to her, that maybe a glass cage felt safer than the space I inhabited as her daughter. A couple of weeks before I met my husband on Kauai, I met another man at a weekend barbecue. He got my number, then asked if I wanted to go for a walk at Secret Speech. We traversed the dirt path, then got to the pink sand. As we walked beside the green and black rocky cliffs, past one beach, then another, I noticed a young woman by herself on a towel. Later on the way back, there was no one around, but we both saw that there was a book sitting on a rock. We walked over to it. It was Clarissa Pinkola Estes' book, Women Who Run With Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman. This guy looked at me. I think that's for you. I still have it. In it, there's a story called The Mistaken Zygote. Here's what Clarissa says. For years, women who carry the mythic life of the wild woman archetype have silently cried, why am I so different? Why was I born into such a strange or unresponsive family? Wherever their lives wanted to burst forth, someone was there to salt the ground so nothing could grow. So the answer to why me, why this family, why am I so different is, of course, that there are no answers to these questions. Still, the ego needs something to chew on before it will let go, so I propose three answers regardless. Prepare yourself. Here they are. We are born the way we are and into the odd families we came through, one, just because. Almost no one will believe this. Two, the self has a plan, and our pea brains are too tiny to parse it. Many find this a hopeful idea. Or three, because of the mistaken zygote syndrome. Well, yes, maybe, but what is that? Your family thinks you're an alien. You have feathers, they have scales. Your idea of a good time is the forest, the wilds, the inner life, the outer majesty. Their idea of a good time is folding towels. If this is so for you and your family, then you are a victim of the mistaken zygote syndrome. We'll see... The zygote fairy was flying over your hometown one night, and all the little zygotes in her basket were hopping and jumping with excitement. You were indeed destined for parents who would have understood you, but the zygote fairy hit turbulence, and oops, you fell out of the basket over the wrong house. You fell head over heels, head over heels, right into a family that was not meant for you. Your real family was three miles farther on. That is why you fell in love with a family that wasn't yours, and that lived three miles over. You always wish... Mrs. and Mr. So-and-so were your real parents. Chances are, they were meant to be. Unfortunately, the things that matter to them are not cohesive with the things that matter to the wild child. At night, when I put my daughter to bed, I often whisper, call your spirit back, Wilder, and return anyone else's you've picked up along the way. I believe that everyone needs their souls back. We are all looking for our safe spaces. Where are yours? How do you feel in your body when you are safe? Where are these places within and around you? Call your soul home. Integrate all those parts of you. Know that you're not alone. That's what this week is about. On Wednesday, you'll meet half-black, half-Chinese Susan Epps, a diversity and inclusion consultant, and we'll explore her quest to find a sense of belonging. She, like me, and maybe like you, could also have been a missing zygote. Tune into Susan's interview and hear how women just like you are figuring out life on their own terms. Remember, life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Make your story beautiful.
And on Friday, I'll offer a simple mindfulness practice to help you deepen everything that you've learned about this week. Come back and stay tuned. Also, if you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend or come visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash FCK, fuck, saving face, to support us getting more content like this out into the world. Thank you so much for listening.